Well, my clock just turned to 9.30, and because I have a full 45 minutes, I'm going to start right away so that we don't lose any time. So welcome in. Come on, sit down. We are going through our next installment in our tour through the Bible where we're overviewing a different book of the Bible each week. And so today we get to move forward in that. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our book for the day. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. We praise you for your word to us and the things that you say to us in Scripture. It's precious to us, and I ask that you would help us to understand it this morning, and that it would not just be something that we understand, but something that we love and delight in and want more and more. And Lord, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So one thing that we've seen through this tour through the Bible is that the Bible is really one unified work. And that's true. Even though there's many different books, it's one unified work. But while it is one unified work, it's also a truly diverse piece of literature. We've already seen sections of history and law. We'll encounter apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature. We'll encounter gospels and epistles. And that wide variety of genres doesn't normally occur in one piece of literature. So the, the Bible is really unique in that sense. And when we read the Bible a lot, that diversity can kind of get lost because we get used to it. We get used to the differences. But it's worth taking a moment to see that the books of the Bible are very distinct from each other um, in some of the genres. And this morning, we're going to look at a book that in many ways is really unparalleled in how distinct it is from other books of the Bible, and that's the book of Psalms. But why do I say that? Why do I say that Psalms is distinct from the other books of the Bible? Well, that's what I hope that we can uncover this morning by answering two different questions. The first question that we're going to look at is, what do we need to know in order to read the book of Psalms better? What do we need to know in order to read the book of Psalms better? We'll go through a couple pieces of information, some categories that we need to know. But then second, we want to look at how we should use the book of Psalms, how we should use the book of Psalms. But first, let's start with that first question. What do we need to know in order to read the book of Psalms better? Well, first, we need to know the background. We need to know the background. And within that, I would include the authorship, how the book came to be, what the book is, some features about it, things like that. And the book of Psalms was just the Hebrew songbook. That was where they they found songs to sing. The Hebrew name for the book as a whole is Tehalim, which means songs of praise. And each psalm would have been called a mizmor, which is just a song. So this this is their songbook, kind of similar to how we have hymnals and hymn books today. The Greek Septuagint that translated the book of Psalms titled it Psalmos, and that's where we get our word psalm from. So this is a book of Psalms. Uh, You'll also hear the collection of individual psalms referred to as a psalter. So I may say psalm, psalms, psalter today, I'm referring to the same thing. Many different authors contributed to the creation of the psalms. It wasn't just one person who wrote all 150 psalms. David is credited with writing about half of all the psalms, around 70 of them. That's the most of any individual author. Asaph, who was a court musician during the reign of David, contributed 12 psalms, and 10 are ascribed to the sons of Korah, who were a group of Levites who led worship in the temple and the tabernacle. Psalm 72 is attributed to Solomon. Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses. And then two men named Heman and Ethan wrote Psalm 88 and 89, respectively. And then the remaining psalms of the book, about a third of the book, are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. A lot of people ascribe many of these psalms to David, but they're not given a title, so we don't get to know who wrote them. And 
the diversity of the authors, from David to Solomon to Moses to all these different people, that's one of the distinctive pieces about the Psalms. There are some other books that feature multiple authors, multiple contributors to the book, you know, like we saw in Deuteronomy that Moses wrote the majority and then someone finished it after his death. But no other book really features this diversity of authors. That's one thing that's unique to them. Uh, the amount of time it took to compile the book also distinguishes the Psalms from other books. Uh, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. And so that means it had to have been written by about 1400 B.C. But Psalm 126 was written after the return from exile, and so that would put it at about 500 B.C. That means that from the first psalm to the last psalm, it took almost a thousand years for the authors of the psalms to write them and for them to be compiled to the form that we have today. And for comparison, from the beginning of the first book to the finishing of the last book of the New Testament, they were all written within about 60 years. So the psalms took far longer than even our entire New Testament did to put together. And we don't have all the details of how the psalms were actually compiled into the form that we have them today. But most scholars agree that someone after the exile took the psalms and put them into this form that we have today. Uh, a lot of people think someone like Ezra may have done that. And it's likely that the, the Psalter would have been growing as they were written, but it didn't reach its final form until likely after the exile. Now, many of the psalms have titles or headings, and these are like introductory comments that the author of the psalm or maybe the editor uh, added to the actual text of the psalm to introduce what follows. And this is a little bit different than maybe the, the title that your, your Bible translators add to the chapter, and those are good things. Those are helpful introductions, but those are not Scripture. What follows is actually part of the original text. So, for example, Psalm 18 my Bible says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. That's, that's the ESV translator committee giving something helpful. But then next, the title is actually part of the chapter. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So that's something that either, either David or the person who put this psalm in the Psalter added to give us information about who wrote it, the situation of when it was written, maybe even some musical notes. Um, and so we should look at these titles to give us context for the psalms that we read. Some of the titles will give us the tune, like Psalm 22 says it's according to the doe of the dawn. Uh, psalm 38 says we should use this at the memorial offering, so sometimes there's details like that. And I, I would encourage you to use these as much as you can, but don't get discouraged if you encounter things you don't understand. These often have musical pieces, information that we don't exactly know what they mean. Uh, we don't know what a maskil is, or a sheminith, or a shigayan, or selah. I don't even know if I've pronounced those correctly. But they're likely some sort of musical term that the original readers, the people who would sing this, would have known. But read these titles just to see what extra information you can pick up to help you understand the psalm that follows. So that's the first piece that we need to know to read the psalms better, the background, the authorship, how it was put together, the titles, what's going on there. That's the first piece. But second, in order to read the psalms better, we want to know how Hebrew poetry works. And if you're like me, you may have just groaned because you don't read a lot of poetry in your free time. And you say, uh, this is not really for me. I want to read the Bible. I don't want to read poems. But I would encourage you that because God has chosen to communicate to us in large part through poetry, it would really serve us well to 
understand a little bit about how poetry works so that we can understand how the Bible works and pursue a deeper relationship with God as a result. So the first aspect of poetry we should understand is parallelism, which is about as hard to say as it is to understand. Parallelism. And this is one of the key features of Hebrew poetry. It's where two lines, called line A and line B, or line 1 and line 2, are set in some sort of parallel fashion. You may encounter two lines that essentially say the same thing, just slightly different. That's called synonymous parallelism, like a synonym. It means the same thing. You also could encounter two lines that say the opposite of each other, and that's called antithetical parallelism. They are antithetical to each other, the antithesis of each other. There are lots of different versions of parallelism, lots of different little tweaks and nuances, but the main point is that in some fashion, line one is connected to line two. It may be emphasizing it, it may be contrasting it, it may be developing the thought. But when you see parallelism, you should ask, okay, how do these two lines relate to each other? That's the question that parallelism is trying to get you to ask, to get you to look deeper. There's an example in Psalm chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So that is an example of synonymous parallelism. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That's saying that the Lord's holy temple is where his throne is, and that's in heaven. That's giving you information about the lines. They're explaining each other. The next line says, His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. There's something where even within the same line there's parallels. His eyes see, his eyelids test. And it's reinforcing this with emphasis to say, Hey guys, God sees you. He sees what's going on. Don't forget this. Take a second look at this. And then verse 5, following right after this, gives a contrast. This is antithetical parallelism. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. You see, on the one hand, the Lord tests the righteous. That's his perspective to the righteous. But on the other hand, he hates the wicked. You can see the contrast there, where God doesn't see everyone similarly. There's actually a difference in how he views people. And so parallelism allows the author to use a literary device to actually say words without saying words. He's communicating something to you by even the form of his words, getting you to look a little bit closer to what he's saying. And there's many other tools like this in the book of Psalms that you might remember from your eighth grade literature class where you looked at poetry and all the different literary devices that go into writing things. The Psalms use metaphors, which is just a comparison of two things. Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. And you immediately are given this image of God acting like a shepherd. That's a metaphor. Psalms also uses similes, which are like metaphors, but they use the word like or as to draw that comparison. Psalm 42.1 is an example. It says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. So he's saying, my desire for God is like this deer who's desperate for water. He's painting a word picture there. And then there's also devices like personification, where a human characteristic is given to something that isn't human for emphasis. Psalm 77, 16 says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. And water doesn't have emotion, doesn't have fear, but it's personified as a person who is in fear of God because of his grandeur. 
And there's all sorts of imagery throughout the book of Psalms that accomplishes a similar meaning, a similar point. The psalmists paint word pictures. They draw comparisons. They give vivid descriptions of really deep truths. And you can even see these literary devices not even within the psalms themselves, but in the structure of them as a whole. There's many psalms that are acrostics, where the first line, the first word of every line or groups of lines will begin with the same, or yeah, the same word of the Hebrew alphabet, then progressing on. Psalm 119 is like this, where every section of eight verses, the first word of the line begins with the same Hebrew word going through the entire alphabet. But it's worth asking, why did the psalmist write this way? Why is there so much of this poetic influence? Why are there these, all of these devices? It just seems extraneous and extra. Why is, what is going on here? And I think that actually speaks to the unique nature of the psalms. They wrote this way because they are describing deep emotional truths. They want to use the full range of our language. They don't want to just simply say, well, this is true. They want to say, how, how, how well can I say this? What words can I use to say this? I want to explore the depths of our language. And because they're using a heightened level of poetic devices, they're able to kind of talk around these truths without coming to land on it. They're able to say more and say, say it in such a way that we can feel it in our hearts rather than just knowing it in our heads. By employing imagery, they're able to explore the depth of the subject, and they don't have to use the straightforward language. And so it's easier for us to connect with the feeling that they're trying to say, rather than just, okay, I understand this in my head. They wanted to get it into our hearts. So we should know the background. We should know poetry. Both of those things will help us to read the Psalms better. But third, it's also helpful to know the structure of the book of Psalms. And Psalms is interesting because it's one of the few books that actually has a built-in outline. it tells you where the outline divisions are as it divides itself into books. So there are books within the book of Psalms. There are five different books identified. Uh, Book 1 contains chapters 1 through 41. Book 2 has 42 through 72. Book 3 is chapters 73 to 89. Book 4 is chapters 90 to 106. And then book 5 finishes with chapters 107 to 150. Each of these are really distinguishable because, like, like I said, they are called out in the text, but they also all end with a benediction. Each book ends with a call to bless the Lord. They're all a little bit different, but each psalm, regardless of whether it's a hopeful psalm or a grieving psalm, it ends with bless the Lord in some fashion. Now, there isn't a lot of scholarly agreement as to what the, why certain psalms are in certain places. We don't know exactly what makes book one different than book five. Like I said, there's not an agreement. But as I studied through it, at least, I, I found something that I think makes sense. And I'll say this with open hands, knowing that it's not, this is not for sure. But I think there is some sort of intentional design for how these five books are set up that I'll walk through here. So book one sets the tone for the entire book of Psalms. Uh, in the first two chapters. Chapter 1 sets forth the path of wisdom and the path of wickedness. Blessed is the man who walks not in, and we know the psalm. It it says there is a a path that leads to wisdom and to life and to blessing, and there's a path that leads to cursing. And then in book, or sorry, chapter 2, we see the reign of God's anointed, the son of God who is his anointed king. And these are two themes that will go throughout the book of Psalms, kind of as guide rails as you read all of these other psalms. So they're very intentionally at the beginning. 
All, all but two of these first 41 psalms that are in book one were written by David. And so there's a very, very heavy influence on David, who is himself God's anointed king, with whom God has made a covenant uh, that he and his descendants would reign forever. So that's book one. In book two of the 31 chapters here, 18 of them are written by David. So there's still a heavy influence uh, of David on these chapters. And then when you come to the end of book two, at the end of Psalm 72, there's a little postscript that says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So it seems to to be saying, look, this this emphasis that we've had on David is kind of over. Now, there are psalms that occur after Psalm 72 that are ascribed to David. So again, this is with open hands. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it seems like thematically, this emphasis on David as the king of Israel is starting to fade. And throughout this book, book two, you also see a little bit more emphasis on psalms of lament, that the, the tenor of the psalms is changing. You're starting to see that more, uh, more take effect. And then book three takes a really sharp, drastic turn. And these are psalms from Psalm 73 to 89 that are very focused on lament. And this book, book three, is often called the book of crisis because of the depth of sorrow that is contained in it. Psalm 88 in particular is really noteworthy because it's a lament that doesn't find any resolution. The psalmist pours out his heart. He says, I'm in a bad way, and then it ends. There's no coming back to God. There's no coming back to truth. It's just pouring out of sadness. And then book three ends with Psalm 89, which starts by rejoicing in God's role in the history of Israel, but then it concludes by lamenting that God has rejected his people and that his people have gone into exile. And the book does close with the final benediction, but before that, the, the main content of Psalm 89 finishes in verses 49 to 51, and it says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed." So books one and two start with a focus of God's anointed, of David. He is the center of these two books. But by book three, we've come to the point where God's covenant love is in question. And the psalmist is saying, hey, remember David? Like, for real, do you remember David? Because it seems like you don't. That is the question that this psalmist is asking. And this is really important because of the Davidic covenant that I mentioned. God had promised in the Davidic covenant that one of David's descendants would reign on the throne forever. And this descendant was going to be the anointed one, the Messiah. And he was going to be the one who crushed the head of the serpent. But something had gone wrong, because that descendant of David was not on the throne as they had gone into exile. So the psalmist is asking, will you honor your covenant? And book four answers with the resounding yes. It begins with Psalm 90, which is that psalm of Moses. And this is from before the time that Israel even had kings. It's like the psalmist says, hey, will you honor this covenant? And the psalmist says, well, let's go back before that and see what God did with his other covenants. Psalm 90 answers the question by reminding the reader that God has sustained them long before any human king had led them, and that God had been their God since the time of the Exodus, that he had upheld the Abrahamic covenant, that he had led them through the wilderness, through all of their own failure, and that he would sustain them. Then, after Psalm 90, in Psalm 93, 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99, 
you see the same refrain repeated that God reigns as king. It's as if the psalmist has said, yes, I hear your question, and God will answer. He will reign as king. And then you get to chapters 103 to 106, and these are extended meditations on God's work in the history of Israel. And so book four confidently reminds us that God has not abandoned his covenant. He has not abandoned his covenant promise. He will uphold his word, and he will bring redemption through the Messiah King. And book five, picking up in Psalm 107, concludes the book with the appropriate response, and that is praise. Psalm 107, The book five of the Psalms contains some of the most focused Psalms of exaltation and exaltation. They're just chock full of praise to God. And they're encouraging the reader to rejoice, to give thanks to God, to praise him, to worship him. And in fact, book five doesn't just end with a verse of benediction. And it doesn't even just end with a chapter of benediction. It ends with multiple chapters of blessing God. It's as if in book five, we're not just given the benediction for that book, but for the book of Psalms as a whole, as the whole book ends in praise and blessing to God. And so if this is the message that's contained in the structure of the five books, we see a construction that actually walks the reader through something that's similar to the history of Israel. We start at the high point of the Davidic kingdom, and we rejoice in that and what God is doing, but then we begin to see the kingdom falter and ultimately fall away into exile. So it raises the question, has God forgotten his promises to his people? And the answer, which we see through the prophets, which we see even in the New Testament, is no, God has not forgotten the promise. He will restore the kingdom, and he will keep his promises, specifically by coming to Israel as a king himself. And so our response should be one of praise. So those are a few key categories, key truths that are really important to help us understand how to read the book of Psalms better. If we can understand the background, if we can understand a little bit about poetry, if we can understand the structure, we're going to be more equipped to understand what the Psalms are saying to us. But I also want to answer our second question. How do we use the Psalms? How do we use the Psalms? And this is a little bit different question than we've asked with the other books we've studied in the Sunday School. All the books of the Bible are beneficial, and we should seek to understand how we can apply them to our lives. But we don't always come to them with the question, how do I use this? How do I use this in my daily lives? We've more asked questions that focus on how to understand the books, what they say to us, and then taken that of, okay, how do I then apply it? But we haven't really asked, how do we use them? But I do think that we should ask this question of the Psalms because of what they are, because of the nature of the Psalms. All Scripture is God's word to us, and that includes the book of Psalms, which is God's inspired word as much as any other of the books of the Bible. But the Psalms are not just God's words to us. They're also our words to God. These are are words that psalmists have written to speak to God to express themselves. And because they are also our words to God, it shows that they're even more of a marvelous gift from God because in it he's given us the vocabulary and the language to shape our own words, to shape our own hearts as we communicate back to him in prayer, in praise, in song, in anger, in tears, in happiness, in grief, in every emotional response that you can imagine. What we see in the Psalms are the words of people who have gone through the highs and lows in life and have worked their way through the sufferings and joys, 
by writing these psalms. They are a gift that we can use. As we go through all that life has for us, we can turn to the psalms to find expression for the pangs of our own hearts. This is an incredible tool, and that's why we should use it. God not only speaks to us, but he gives us the means to shape our own hearts and words. The Psalms teach us how to praise God correctly. They teach us how to suffer. They teach us how to call out to God. They direct us to truth to which we can cling when we're overwhelmed. And they teach us how to think and feel about Jesus and about sin and about our enemies. And a key hermeneutical tool that we teach at Redemption Hill is that we shouldn't seek to make the Bible about ourselves. We're, we're not the main point of the Bible. God is. We want to see what is the Bible saying. We need to let the text speak for itself. We need to see what the Bible says to us. And we want to apply that here. I'm not trying to give a different hermeneutic for the book of Psalms. But if the Psalms themselves are the words of humans back to God, and if the point is for God to give us words to express ourselves, that would actually be using Scripture correctly. So... In their very design, they're meant for us to find ourselves in them. And if we revisit the first three areas we talked about with the the background, the structure, and and poetry, we can actually see little hints of how the Psalms are constructed in such a way for us to utilize them. Think of the authorship. A third of the Psalms are anonymous. And there are some with titles, but most of them miss that extra information. They don't have a lot of context. And I think part of that is they are somewhat intentionally vague so that we can also identify with what the author is going through. We don't need to know every detail about a battle or a sickness because the author is saying, I'm going through this time of difficulty. And we can say, I'm going through difficulty too. What truth can I draw from this, from this shared experience that this person has gone through? I think that's part of the reason why we don't have an incredibly tight knowledge of what the structure is, that that's even intentionally vague so that we can use this as well. And then think of the nature of poetry. The Psalms are poetry instead of prose so that we can use this in the times that we need them. Uh, Prose gives information in a more straightforward way, but the poetic form of the Psalms lets us talk all around the issues of our heart. And if any of us have ever listened to a song and said, wow, that expressed what I'm feeling better than anything that I've been able to say before. That's because it's poetry. This is what the Psalms are doing. Using poetic devices allow us to use the full expression of our language rather than a merely straightforward, simple declaration. And while prose speaks more to the head, poetry speaks to the heart. And that is exactly what the Psalms intend to do. John Calvin captured the nature of the Psalms well when he said, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that it is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So how should we use the Psalms? By finding ourselves in them. By using them to shape our responses by letting them direct our hearts. And in our remaining time today, I'm going to highlight a few of the most common types of psalms to say these are the the ways that the psalmists themselves express themselves and then say, how do we use these different types in our own lives? Now, this is not an exhaustive list of the different types of psalms. 
And each psalm doesn't neatly fit into one category. Many times in a single psalm, you'll have multiple different categories or types of expression. And just for our purposes today, I want to bring a few of the more prominent types to your attention so that we can use these psalms more effectively. Perhaps the most common theme in all of the psalms is that of praise. You'll see psalms of praise littered throughout the book. And no matter what situation we're going through, the ultimate final end of our response should be to praise the Lord. You'll find the Hebrew phrase, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. You'll find that repeatedly throughout the book. It's not translated hallelujah every time. But when you see the phrase, praise the Lord, that's that phrase. Psalm 113 says, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 117 offers another example of not only expressing our own praise, but also calling others to worship him as well. It says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, at Redemption Hill, we often read calls to worship like this in order to introduce our services on Sunday. And we do this to invite all of us who are joining in worship to prepare to worship our great and awesome God. It's really easy to come in distracted or burdened or rushed, and the Psalms can redirect our focus to the right place. But we should also recognize that this is not just an invitation to worship. It's actually a command. While it's true that we want to invite people in warmly and and invite them to worship, this is not optional. And the Psalms that call people to worship give reasons. They say, worship him because of this. He deserves to be worshiped because of this. They're not just empty calls to praise God, praise God, praise God. They're they're deeply rooted in the nature and works of God. Psalm 117 says that we should praise the Lord because his love toward us is great and his steadfast love endures forever. And so when you see these psalms of praise, focus in on those reasons that are given. Let the reasons inflame your own heart to respond with the psalmist for God's incredible deeds and nature and start directing your heart to love the things that the psalmist has mentioned about God. You can do this as you read the psalms. And you should use these psalms of praise as you pray. You can pray these words of the psalms back to God in a prayer of adoration to help express how you love God as well. And we do this, we can use these psalms corporately as we sing the psalms. We we often sing psalms that are very very closely or loosely based on the psalms here at church. And I asked Carrie if he'd be willing to let us sing some in our service today, and I thought we'd get one, and we're going to sing three, which I'm really excited about. While the psalms are fresh on our mind, we get to use them in song, in praise to God. So those are psalms of praise. But another important type of psalm is that of lament. That of lament. The psalmist will often bear forth their soul and tell God all about the enemies that are pursuing them, about how low they have been brought. They'll express their physical and emotional distress. They'll even express how much they hate their own sinfulness and lack of faith. And sometimes they even express incredulity about what God is doing. Psalm 22 contains words from David that Jesus used on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Psalms of Lament are essential for Christians. Because life isn't always hunky-dory. Because we will go through times of grief as well. And the longer we live, the more we will come to understand the feeling that is expressed here. And I haven't been on earth as long as many here, but I even can attest to this, that 20 years ago, when I read a psalm like this, it didn't really sink in that far. It kind of bounce off me. I didn't have much life experience to know the feeling of being forsaken by God. So I can mentally understand this, but I hadn't lived enough to know what that felt like. But the longer you go through life, the more you can say with the psalmist, God, why have you forsaken me? That we will all go through times where we will feel that. And so the more difficulties and sorrows that you experience, I think the more rich the psalms will become. And the more the psalms of lament especially will become rich and lovely to you. Because the psalms show that others have been through it too. What's interesting about the psalms of lament is that in addition to giving voice to these deep emotions they nearly always bring the speaker back to truth. The verse right after those two that I read in Psalm 22 say, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And so as as they go through these psalms of lament, they become even more useful to us because they not only express what we're feeling, but they also show us how to deal with it, what we should think about in response, how to guide ourselves back to truth. And so as, as we did with the psalms of praise, I encourage you to pray the psalms of lament. When you go through trials, come to these psalms and make the words your own. There are psalms of lament that we sing, that again, we can express these psalms. Psalm 130 is like that that we'll sing today. And I would just encourage you, use them to put words to your hurting and guide you back to truth. And I can guarantee that you will not exhaust the balm that is found in these psalms. And by the way, if you're looking for which psalms might be beneficial to read, I would encourage you, find someone who's been through more life than you. Find someone who's been through trials. Because I can say for almost certainty that they probably have some psalms that are their favorites, that have comforted them, that have been there for them. And I can tell you one of the sweetest times for me in our small group is when we'll be discussing something in a time of discouragement comes up and Connie Nagin just starts quoting, this is what got me through it. And it comes back quickly because I know it was effective. Now, in addition to psalms of praise and lament, is psalms that focus on the nature of wisdom. And even just in these three categories, you can start to see there's a lot of different types of psalms. Uh, Psalm 1 that I mentioned before starts this way, focusing on wisdom. And it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And many of these psalms of wisdom laud the goodness of God's word, of God's law. Psalm 119, which is the largest chapter in the Bible, uses 176 verses, basically to say, I love God's law. That's how much the psalmist loves it, that he would spend all of this time developing this thought. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So how should we use the wisdom psalms? We should use them to see what it says about what it means to live a wise life. But we should also see how it talks about the word of God. Let these psalms direct your heart to love wisdom and treat the Bible the way that the psalmist treats the Bible, with the love and affection and attention. These psalms should fuel our love for God's word because when you love the word, you love the one who wrote the word and you will love the word who became flesh. I have two more types of psalms to cover here. Uh, The second to last are the psalms that are messianic. And these are called messianic because they point forward to the Messiah, who is Jesus. Now, these psalms were written about real situations, but they also contain truths that apply to Jesus and point forwards to him. We mentioned Psalm 22 that was written by David about a real situation in his own life, but it's also a messianic psalm because Jesus, who is himself the true son of David, experienced the epitome of suffering on the cross. And other Messianic psalms focus on the reign of the Messiah. These psalms point first to the human Davidic king. They're often written about a real king in a real situation. And that Davidic king is himself a type of Messiah because they are the anointed one. And Messiah just means anointed one. But ultimately, even though they're about a human king, they point forward to the true and ultimate Messiah. Psalm 45 is an example. It starts out in the first three verses where it seems to only be talking about a human king. It says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. But as we read on, we find some things that actually go beyond just a human king. And in fact, verses 6 and 7 are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, and they are applied directly to Jesus. These verses say, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprighteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So how should we use the Messianic Psalms? Well, when you encounter them, use the words of the psalm to praise Jesus. Be encouraged at the faithfulness of God to include these promises in the book of Psalms long before the Messiah would actually come. And rejoice that where Jesus himself uses the psalms, like Psalm 22, he's voicing his own suffering. He's showing his humanity and how how much he himself even benefited from the words of the psalms, that he was like us in his suffering. As we suffer, Jesus understands. So we have psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms of wisdom, messianic psalms, and the final psalm I want to address is the imprecatory psalm. And these are psalms that speak against evil. And not just evil, but evil people specifically, not just in general. These psalms request that God would judge evil people for their deeds. Psalm 69, verses 22 to 24 gives an example Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. 
Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. Now, some of the imprecatory psalms are frankly shocking. Psalm 137, verse 9, which is written about Israel's Babylonian captors, it says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And that's quite a prayer. So the question is, should we pray like that? Should we use these imprecatory psalms? There are many Christians that have a a view that is, I don't think is um, entirely incorrect. Their view is that while Old Testament believers could pray these things, um, that they, they were allowed to pray these things against their enemies, now that Christ has come with commands like love your enemies and pray for them, uh, this side of the cross, they would say, we shouldn't actually pray this way toward our enemies. But I, I think that tends to oversimplify the issue a little bit. It does speak to a truth in the New Testament, but I think it oversimplifies things. And if I could, I'd like to paraphrase something that Pastor J.D. said in a sermon a few weeks ago, that imprecatory psalms are not driven by a desire for personal vengeance. They come from the fear of God and from a desire for God to show his righteousness and his faithfulness. Imprecatory psalms do not weaponize prayer for use in personal vengeance. I think that captures the heart of the imprecatory psalms. These don't come from the psalmist with the desire for vengeance. And so if we desire to pray similarly, we must not come from that same heart as well. If our desire is for God's glory and righteousness to be seen, and for the helpless and for the oppressed to be rescued from evildoers, then we can use the pattern of the psalms to pray against the wicked. So we can use the imprecatory psalms, but check your heart. Check your heart before you pray to say, why am I praying this? And if it's from a root of personal vengeance, I would encourage you, don't don't pray that prayer. There are many other variations and types of psalms, but the point remains the same. We should use these psalms. We should use these psalms in our lives. Use them to express and direct our emotions. Use them to see the glory of Christ. And use them to find words to say when you don't have words of your own. I'd like to close with an example of the power of the psalms that I've personally seen. Uh, My grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, he turns 89 on Wednesday. He's lived a long life. And he has fallen deeper and deeper into dementia over the last several years. And it's been a very difficult process to watch him go through. I recently heard him say on the phone to my mom that he just doesn't want to be here anymore. He's tired. He hurts a lot. He's frustrated. He's confused. And it's confusion that I wouldn't wish on anyone, much less someone that I love dearly. And I was able to see him with my mom and dad on Christmas. And it was a great time to see him, but... He spent most of the time just trying to figure out who I was and trying to understand even who his own son was, my dad. And it was a discouraging time, frankly. Um, A lot of bad smells, a lot of frustration, a lot of just difficulty. But while we were there together, my dad uh, reminded my grandfather of his favorite psalm. And my grandfather, who doesn't remember his own grandson. He doesn't remember most things. As soon as my dad started quoting the psalm, he joined right in. I knew it, knew it word for word. It was Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Read the Psalms. Use them. They will not fail you, even to the end. You're dismissed.